beautiful uh, red bud winter morning, right? Those old-timey folks seem to pay very meticulous attention to the seasons in creation, didn't they? So, you're not wrangling uh, teenagers? Uh, so you are wrangling teenagers. No, actually, they're all down here. It's good. Yeah. So, well, we'll get started. We'll let the the uh, the coffee cups get full. And um, for those of you that are that maybe weren't with us the last couple of weeks, we're we've kind of gone backwards. We jumped into Romans one. Uh, 16 through the end of that that chapter, um, just out of the providence and circumstance that we have with Mr. Kemp, and I really wanted to, as we we begin the transition into a more kind of ordered study um, of the rest of the book, go back and really kind of lay out um, a little more about the book. And I and I would have to say that that even with the last two weeks of looking at Paul and his conversion from Saul to Paul. Um, right up until last night as I was just studying, um, you know, it's one of, I think it's one of those fearful things for a teacher to, to be discerning about because the study kind of went right in front of me. So you guys are gonna either be the, the beneficiaries of that this morning or the victims. <laughs> so, um, so bear, bear with me as I try to work through this. But let's, let's first start with a word of prayer. Father, we, we just thank you for this blessed time that you have so graciously purposed through your Son to gather ourselves from the daily course of our lives and, Lord, the constant reality that though we are not of this world, we are certainly in this world, and it is all around us, and it at times can be just overwhelming. Particularly, Lord, as we absorb the truth of your word and how vividly and precisely it describes both the wickedness of humanity, the system that governs this world, and then so much more, Lord, the blessed grace that has redeemed from that very world a people whom you will save to the uttermost. No shred of sin and wickedness will remain when you bring us to our final state that we might honor you, that we might glorify you, that we might exalt you, that we might be consumed with your glory, free from all of the flesh and distraction so that our eternal days will be fixed upon you. <laughs> what a glorious truth. And how beautifully this man, Paul, understood that as you ripped him out of his false religion, his self-righteous religion, and just immersed him in the ministry that caused you to weep. We just praise you for these blessed truths in this time to gather, Lord. And we pray that your word would, in fact, penetrate our hearts in all the ways you desire it to. And that we would exalt you and thank you and praise you for it. In your very precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So, um, I, I wanted to kind of shift. We've talked a lot about the Apostle Paul. I want to talk this morning and probably the next morning a little bit about the so we've talked about the author, but then there's the object of this epistle, um, and then there's the intent of this epistle. And, and part of what I, I think has been so helpful, and of course any of us who study the scriptures are just fascinated by the people the Lord calls into these ministries to be the means by which the, the word of God has been revealed to us. Right? I don't think we should ever get over the wonder of that. And like any author, their stories are very much a product of th them, right? But in this case, it was absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit to make sure it was the clear and complete and precise revelation of human history that God chose to reveal to us, right? There's a lot he could have put in, right? But, but, but he precisely, uh, and as only our triune God could do, captured in, in this set of books precisely what he wanted us to have. That is a wondrous thought, if you really just let that grab a hold of you. And the authors of that were moved along by the Holy Spirit, but it is very much the essence of who they are. And I think we'll see that as we've studied the author, Paul, uh, we're going to now look at the object of this epistle um, and then the intent, because I think they're two distinctly different things. Um, and and uh, it, it truly is, Jeff and I were talking this morning about the, the Puritans and the old-timey you know, students of Scripture and just how, how much they, they harvested for us out of the scriptures. And much of that was the crucible they were living in, certainly for the Puritans, right? So the, the object of, of this letter to, to, to the Romans is obviously the church. And Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his introduction of this book, makes a very important point, particularly for me as a former Roman Catholic, uh, that, that this is the church not of Rome, as if the church were the thing. <laughs> this is the church in Rome, right? Because the church at large is the thing. The locations and the dispersion of, of the church is simply a function of geography. And he was guarding, quite explicitly in that introduction, from those who claimed to have the church. Very dangerous, because whose church is it? It's Christ's church, right? And it is the regenerate believers that make up that church, and they are dispersed all over the place. Some of them in wonderful churches, some of them in very unsound churches. And yet, as Tina and I listened to a study this morning on Daniel's prayer, the Lord is going to bring every one of them to him ultimately and finally. And that is a wondrous thought that we can just hang on to very tightly. A little bit about this church I, I think is helpful, and I'm going to just read a little bit from from those uh, who have helped us from the past. But MacArthur says of the, uh, the church city of Rome, it, it was obviously the capital, the most important city of the Roman Empire, which is a lot to take in. It was founded around 753 BC, uh, but is actually not mentioned in scripture until the New Testament. Totally void, right? Um, in Paul's day, the city had about a million people in it. I think we think about the populations at that time. And this was interesting, many of whom were slaves. Amazing. And I think it really forces you to now go, what does the Bible mean by slave, right? And um, I don't want to 
go too far into that. But but over the history of humanity, um, you know, the, the, there is the the wicked form that we know so well, and has has been so destructive to so many different people groups within humanity. Uh, there's also more of the, the historical enslavement, which is it was part of the commerce system. It was the labor and being indebted to the one who would allow you to, to purchase large things. You repaid them with labor and were indebted to that person until that payment was. That's why when you watch your, your European movies um, and if you've ever watched The Tale of Two City or read The Tale of Two City, you see these in, in right this indebtedness and you see these debtors prison. Well, that's that's what all that is in there, right? And our wicked hearts just turn that into the most atrocious class system, right? That that we so often. Um, but but most of the people in this city of Rome were in fact slaves. As we talked, Rome boasted of magnificent architecture. We talked about the bridge, and we talked about the way they build these magnificent bridges and the the arches that they built with a set stone that sets all the other pieces in place, which we'll talk a little bit more about as we look at the construct of this book. Um, the date of the book is, is a little bit unsure in that timeline of Saul to Paul and his ministries, but very likely in the latter 50 AD time frame, some have pegged it to 57, 58, um, and that's very helpful when you, when you try to harmonize this with the overall ministry of Paul and some of the other things where, that were going. Paul wrote the letter from Corinth. Um, and it's interesting that uh, we have from tradition, as we know, Paul was martyred outside Rome um, on the Ostian Way um, during Nero's reign. Um, and what was Paul's great desire in this letter? to come to Rome and be with these people. And it's interesting that it is the course at which on his second visit would be the end of his earthly life, right? The origin of the Roman church is one that has been a mystery. Um, and an unsettled mystery for sure. And I, I, I would encourage you if you enjoy the book of Romans, and I'm sure you do, that there, there is a particular uh, commentary on the book of Romans by James Stifler, you know, late 1800s, um, uh, who, who actually taught 20 different classes of theological students on the book of Romans. And 14 of them he taught from the original language. Now think about how intimate that man was with this book and, and his commentary that is compressed down to a very readable book. Um, it's not one of these, you know, oh my word, how am I gonna carry that thing around? It, it is a very, very good treatment of the book of, of Romans. Um, James Stifler, and just wonderful, um, just wonderful. But he says this about this church in Rome. The church is historically obscure. There's no record and little from which a record can be constructed, either of the actual date of its beginning or the agent or agents of its founding. That's very important. Where do they come from? right in the middle of Rome, right? When the epistle to the Romans was written, the church had already a worldwide reputation, if you look at verse 8 of Romans 1. And, and of course, Rome was the, the centerpiece, right, of which everybody flowed in and out of. So what a perfect place for a faithful church, where the gospel could just be 
distributed, right? Which is part of the reason why it had this reputation worldwide at the time. But little help, but little can be inferred from this as to the length of time which the church had already existed. We just don't know. It seems almost necessary to believe that the Roman church was founded, and this is Stifler's perspective on this, by teachers from some of the Gentile centers, and that too, after such teachers had come to a clear vision of the intent of the gospel for Gentiles. Very key, right? For those of you that have enjoyed the birth of the church in the book of Acts, that should just go, that's what happened to me last night, quite frankly right, as I was rereading these notes, and that they could be saved as Gentiles. And that's Stifler's take uh, based on the reading, the man, and the letter itself. So I want to I take us through a little journey. Go with me to Acts chapter 10 and verse 34. And as we recall, right, we, we kind of... Uh, ended our study of Paul in, in Acts 9 in his conversion and then his clear zeal to take the gospel um, immediately, right? Just a, just a wondrous conversion of Saul to Paul, like some that we know, unlike others that we know. It's one of the fascinating things about regeneration, isn't it, right? You see some people, it's like, whoa, right? You kind of get the the Moses, you know, um, burn from their zeal. And then other people you've met, and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't really know exactly when, right? It's very, the Lord works in a number of ways. But I want to take you to this point in Acts 10, 34. And I want to begin to zero us in on the Gentile church. And I want to, we're going to get into a couple mornings of discussion around the, the key words that are used in this book for clarification, and then the key doctrines that are in this book. Um, but I want to just kind of foreshadow that a little bit, uh, as you will see unpack in this book, the doctrinal centrality of and the battleground for the gospel, which is justification by faith. Right, And we, we who have studied the Puritans and the Reformation, we kind of let those words wash over us because they become so common. Don't do that. It's very interesting to note that Paul uses this phraseology and sequence a lot in his writings for the Jew first, then the Gentile. For the Jew first, then the Gentile. What does he mean by that? Why is he so consistent? And maybe why was he so persistent, particularly as he was moved along by the Holy Spirit? I think that will help us understand one of the clear intentions of this book, but we'll come to that. Look at Acts 10, 34. And here we have the birth of the Gentile church, us, the us, right? Those that were grafted in... <laughs> because of Israel's failures, sinfulness. And here you have Paul, who has been given this ministry of all people, Paul, right? What I want you to see is how serious both the struggle of the Gentile church was right from the beginning and how dangerous the ground it was standing on was because of the desire for the Judaizers to add to the gospel. And I want you to pay attention, if you've not threaded this through, from where within were they trying to do that, the Judaizers? Okay, I know there's a lot in there, and we, we, should, we should study these things over the course of our time. Verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth. So he's had this vision, right? So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. Mark those words from Peter's mouth. 
And then we can all look in the mirror and say, Amen. Just like Peter I am, right? That God shows no partiality. And I'll just foreshadow, that is the problem you will see flow right, right through this text that we're going to look at was partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him, Grady's teaching us about that this morning, and does what is right is acceptable to him. Peter understands it. He gets it. I think we all know Peter didn't always behave it and obey it. And we're about to see that again. Jump down just for the sake of time to chapter 11, just down below where you are. And um, I'm sorry, so go down, go back up a little bit, just to 10, verse 44. Sorry for the whiplash. While Peter was still saying these things, he was proclaiming the gospel and the glory of Christ, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Pretty powerful moment. And the believers from among the, pay attention, circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues, here's the Gentiles, speaking in tongues and extolling God. And my brain just says, I wonder if some of them ended up in Rome, right at the birth of the Gentile church. Then Peter declared, verse 47, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Right there. Just dropped their lives, camped out, so that they could begin to understand. This is important for believers, new believers, old believers. So that they could begin to understand what in the world just hit them. What in the world just happened to them? And that's what good discipleship should do, is unpack that through the scriptures as to what God is doing in the life of that individual. Right? And then you get to chapter 11, verse 1, the, the chapter breaks that are not always so convenient. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Okay, so the word's going out. And at this point, obviously, what is the early baby church made up of? Jewish people. Boy, don't lose sight of that. This becomes very material to Paul's writing of the book of Romans. I'll give you a little bit of a, 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 a fast forward. I think it's personally why the, what appears to be this com complete jerk of the wheel between Romans 8 and Romans 9, 10, and 11 exists. And we're going to talk more about that. The church began with the Jews. The Jews first, then the Gentiles. Paul was always saying that. Very subtle, but you begin to see it flow out of Paul's heart and mind, right? Now, verse 2 of chapter 11. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, what? What do you see? Where's it coming from? Within the church. It's fascinating to me. This is where the brakes just kind of hit last night for me. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, do, do you recall another problem Peter has with this? 
because we're going we're gonna to touch on it. So what I want you to see is God had the string, but it sure appears that if you thread this out, it looks like the gospel of grace, not works, was hanging by a thread or two threads. One had Paul hanging on it, one had Peter hanging on it. Jump down to, and we're just going to skip along to try to get the context of this. Jump down to verse 17 and 18. Peter has shared about his vision. In verse 16, it says, And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. To given testimony to this conversion of the Gentiles because it was very, this blew the minds of the Jewish people, the Jewish believers. They thought it was all about them. They couldn't quite get over this. Verse 17, if then God gave the same gift to them <laughs> as he gave to us, you see the distinction, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I, said Peter rightly, that I could stand in God's way? And when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Hmm. So far, so good, huh? Kind of got, got past that real serious issue, right? The Gentiles are in. Okay, so skip forward to Acts 15 with me. So what you have is um, the ministry of Paul. An awful lot takes place. Hate to skip over it. But we find ourselves in Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. And it's very helpful for me, if I can just work through this, I'm just going to read this to you all the way down to verse 17 so you can get a context of what's going on with the early church, the Gentile church, the heart of Peter, these Judaizers, Paul, and what are we going to do with this Gentile thing? So, that, so we've now, what has happened, Paul has gone out and all of a sudden it's kind of going like this. And I think you could argue that the Jews, the Jewish portion of the church is beginning to wonder, are we being overshadowed by the Gentile church? Very important, right? I think it'll help you understand some of the things Paul says in his writings. But first, let's get to this council, verse 1 of Acts 15. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. What were they teaching them? Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, we talked about Paul, actually Saul, and what he was doing the three days he sat on Straight Street, what was he doing? Praying. Not eating, not drinking, not sleeping. Praying. He was a troubled man. Because his whole life he was defined by his self-measurement against the law. And Prior to getting knocked off his high horse, he thought he was really doing well. And now all of a sudden, he feels the full weight of that law having met the Lord Jesus Christ. And he can't do anything but pray. And what do you wonder he was praying? What would he have been praying before those scales came off? 
Lord, have mercy on me. Right? Do you see why the law and the gospel of grace and adding to the gospel are so intense for Paul? Are there parts of your previous life, your religious life, that are now just abhorrent to you as you look at this through Christ? And they're kind of intense for you? This is Paul. And they are very intense. And it is the purity of the gospel and the fact that it came to the Jews first. Verse 2, I better hurry up. After Paul, and after Paul and Barnabas, listen to this, had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. And this had to be the moment where the rest of them were going. We're just getting washed over here. There's envy. There's jealousy. And if that is not divine, <laughs> it becomes very sinful. And another uh, form of class system. The Jews and then those Gentiles. But we're all going to be brothers, right? Verse 5, but some, this is what's amazing, but some believers, I just have to pause there, but some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. What's happening right there? You see it? What's happening? Polluting the gospel of grace with the law. And what's amazing is these are described as believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees right there within the Jerusalem council. Look how fragile the gospel appears to be right here. How would you like to know that your salvation is dependent upon you keeping the law of Moses, being circumcised as a Jew, and then receiving the grace of God as a result of all your works? That would be the gospel had this not been raised up and addressed by God through this council, right? Paul's right in the middle of it because Paul's the guy creating the problem. <laughs> in a sense, is he not? He's been the one out being the vessel and by which all these Gentiles are being saved. It's fascinating, isn't it? The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, as you can imagine, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Peter's hearkening back to what we just read. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, and he made no distinction between us and them. Having cleansed their hearts by faith, now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test? And there's the real piercing question. It's a good one to store away. Because Lord knows there are professing believers 
that you will encounter who are constantly putting God to the test. And what is the test? It's amazing the cohesiveness of Scripture. What did Satan say in the garden? Did God really say? Isn't what you want or what you feel or what you think you need more important than what God says? That was it. Right? And it plunged the entire human race into condemnation. Child after child after child. It's fearful. All right, where am I? And God knows the heart. God knows and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to Bear. It was all a charade before the gospel came in. They just didn't know it, did they? Because they were using man's scale and not the holiness and demands of God. Verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through, here it is, beautiful Peter, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And think about this church in Rome. There had to be a connection there. We don't know what it is. God didn't reveal it to us. But this is the, the world-famous church in Rome. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God has first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. What's he invoking there? God's sovereign election. God will do as he pleases. You can fight against it all you want. You can let your, your self-centered envy and jealousy that kept the gospel from going to the nations in the first place. But God is sovereign, and he will choose whom he is pleased to choose. And it is not because of them, it's because of him. That, that's where James is going and, and Simeon. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this, I will return. Now, I want you to see the Jewishness of this narrative. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. What's he talking about? He's now into eschatological text. The Daniel prophecy. The restoration of Israel. Romans 9 10 and 11. This is all right at the very heart of Paul's new life and new ministry and zeal for the gospel of grace, not works. It's embedded deep into his soul. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And by the way, at this point, it wasn't destroyed yet, was it? That the remnant of what? The Jews? Of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. What's, that a, what's, a, what's a kind of a simple way of describing what was just said? This has been God's plan all along, isn't it? Now, um, nine forty two. Um, what I would love to just 
encourage you to think about. As we've studied this man named Saul, who has now become Paul, and who instantly had a zeal for Christ in the gospel that drove him. Have you ever looked at the missionary journeys of Paul on a map? I was looking at it last night. It's like, wear me out, one leg of it. And Paul had like 15 or 20 of them by foot, by ship, broken bones. I mean, this just compelled this man in ways we can't fully comprehend, right? Go with me to Psalm 96, 1 through 6. This is from David. It's also in 1 Chronicles. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Psalm 96, verse 1. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the what? Nations. His marvelous works among just the Jews? All the peoples, right? For great is the Lord and great to be praised, for he is above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. Those are the pagans that the Jews hated. And instead of hating them, they were commanded to take the glory of the Lord to them. And they refused. It was beneath them. At least those that didn't know the Lord, right? But the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now go with me back to Romans. And just go right to the beginning. And we'll read this first seven verses, maybe eight. And we'll just hear Paul's heart in this letter. Paul, now I want you to pay attention to how Paul pulls into this letter to the Gentile church, the Jews' first theme that we've just looked at. It was God's sovereign choice. This is very helpful when we get to Romans 9, 10, and 11. It was God's Sovereign choice to allow Israel, who was described as what? The least, the smallest. People, they, right? They were like, flick them away. He chose them to be the vessels by which this glorious gospel would be revealed in the remnant. Right? Because not all Israel is Israel, right where Paul starts in Romans 9. But that gospel flowed through that line of the remnant right out into the Gentiles, right? And next week, we'll hear that warning. Don't you be arrogant, church, Gentiles. You were grafted in. But it is they who receive the oracles first, right? Just listen to how that flows through in Paul's introduction to this Gentile church, the who he just loved and didn't know. Paul, a servant of Jesus, of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised, here's the beforehand, through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. All the way back, right? Concerning his son, always the same message, who was descended 
from, here's the glory of Israel, David, according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, where? There it is. You see it? You see how having scripture just buried in your heart will just come out at just the right time. That's why the Lord said, don't, don't worry about what to say. If you are being faithful in the word of God, the spirit of God will prompt you. They'll just, like, where did that come from, right? The key is that we are absolutely saturated in the word of God. Now, this is kind of getting to the, my very long-winded introductory thought on this, so if you'd thank you for bearing with me. Among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, right? So he, he calls out at the except, including you, Rome, including you, church, right? To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. He understood the sovereignty of God. Because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They themselves were a mouthpiece for the gospel because of their reputation amongst the pagan world, right? Now, here's what I want you to think about as we, we kind of transition into next week's study and we start talking about the intent. Do you think Saul was saturated in the text? Like we could never imagine being saturated in the text. The whole Hebrew language was a rhythmic language for the expressed purpose of memorization, meaning they memorized massive portions of the Hebrew text over and over and over. When he wrote renewing your mind, he knew exactly what he meant when the Spirit of God provoked that out of him. No one except the very small group of people understood and were saturated with the Old Testament text as much as Saul was. And yet until he had those scales removed from his eyes, he missed the cornerstone of it all. And none of it made sense to him. And the default for it not making sense was to simply define righteousness by the law, which was always the means by which we were to be condemned. The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ and to set us free from the law, right? Now, can you just imagine what it must have been like for Saul to realize that not only has he come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, and all of a sudden there was this flood of understanding of the text. And one of the key texts that must have just rocked him sideways was that the just shall live by faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Do you see in Paul, you go read every one of Paul's life, these just flood out of him, right? Because he understood finally. He finally understood. But now he's coming to the realization, and I think this is the zeal that we see in the Apostle Paul. He's realizing 
all these texts that talk about taking the gospel to the Gentiles, that God has chosen him. Think about that. God has chosen him to be the vessel in which that will be done. Out of all his Jewishness, out of all his zeal for righteousness, for God, God has chosen him, the Jew of Jews, to take that gospel. This is not a, uh, okay, so we're going to save Saul, and then what are we going to do with him? What are we going to do with him? I know, we'll, we'll send him to, no. This was the eternal plan of God. And it was all landing on a man now named Paul. And I just, I think it's helpful to just sit there and imagine what was going on in Paul's heart when he realized how God had planned from eternity's past to use him to be a vessel to bring the gospel to those who didn't know it. And what's wondrous about that is that we have the exact same responsibility. And if the Lord has saved us, it is to that purpose, to glorify Christ through his glorious gospel so that God can bring to himself his people and watch them be sanctified and zealous for God. That is the Apostle Paul to a T, right? But you will see next week the intent of this book that he ultimately gets through according to Mr. Stifler. Okay? Any thoughts or questions? Anything, clarifications? Anything anybody want to share? Do you see, as you think about the books of Paul that you've written, how this just oozes out of Paul? If you go back and read, you'll go, oh, there it is. Oh, there it is. He just couldn't get past what the Lord had done to him and what the Lord had called him to do and how the Lord had equipped him perfectly as Saul to do it, which is every one of us. That's very, that's kind of thrilling when you think about it, right? All unto him. So, so next week we'll come back and we'll look a little bit about the intent and then get into some of the doctrinal elements of this book. Okay, thank you guys.